Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Life with GDPR, a podcast where I work in conjunction with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, and a well-known data privacy, data protection expert. However, first, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always expanding, and I'm looking for new podcasts. Have you wanted to do a podcast but didn't know how? Take a listen to our sponsor this week, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. In this episode of Life with GDPR, Jonathan and I explore the data protection issue around phishing. Many people think of phishing as the Nigerian prince sending you an email that you are a royal family member or something along those lines, but it's actually become, unfortunately, much more sophisticated than this. Uh, In this podcast, we take up all forms of phishing. Life with GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode of Life with GDPR. Jonathan, first of all, uh, welcome and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. My pleasure, Tom. Jonathan, on our podcast series, we focus quite a bit of attention on the data privacy aspect of GDPR, but I was wondering today if we might have a few words about data protection, because uh, one of the things that has struck me about this law is the uh, requirement that companies actually think about data protection, and then, of course, if you do have a breach, uh, notify the appropriate uh, authorities and or people have been uh, had their data uh, breached. Uh, I was wondering, one of the things we have seen in the United States is the continuing evolution sophistication of phishing expeditions. Yeah. So what are some of the phishing stories you have seen, heard of, or even heard in the ethereal rumor mill that have uh, struck your attention? Yes, I think that's uh, a a great topic. I mean, it seems to me as as a recap, as we said earlier on these podcasts, you're under an obligation under GDPR to keep data secure. And that's not a new obligation that's existed in in data protection law across the EU for many years, and that's an obligation to take reasonable technical and organisational measures. And if you fail to do that, then you might have to tell a regulator, you might have to tell them within 72 hours, and if you pass a particular threshold of harm, then you might have to tell affected individuals as well. And we've seen high volumes of both of those, telling affected individuals and also telling regulators about breaches. So certainly uh, over 40,000 breaches have been reported since GDPR came in. And I think a high volume of those will be phishing related. And the basic principles, again, are the same. You must put in place adequate technical and organisational measures to stop phishing taking place. So that's going to be looking at the technology that you employ, things like blocking certain emails if you see patterns, monitoring, whether you're using what's called heuristic technology, so technology that learns, which uh, seems to be 
uh, at least part of the consideration for corporations they should be looking at this but also technology that's looking at lists and banned email addresses but the other aspect of that so that's the t bit then there's the o bit as well the organizational measures and here i think we're seeing that many organizations fail and one of the reasons i think they fail is when they do do phishing training they're often telling people to look for the wrong things. So when I was first connected up to the internet and you saw the very first uh, emails come through with uh, scammers in, I guess, the very early 90s, then they tended to follow a certain pattern. They were badly spelt. They usually were very uh, uh, polite in their tone and they normally had some sort of uh, religious overtone to them. That as you, in dearly beloved? As in dearly beloved and yours in faith. And they were nearly always saying to you something to the extent that there was a pot of money somewhere that had to be released. And if it wasn't released, some bad guys would get it. And we're still seeing iterations of that. On my wall, there's an email that I received a couple of weeks ago from somebody telling me that there was a pot of money in a Hong Kong bank account. And the bank account was in the name of somebody else called Armstrong. And they weren't sure whether I was a relative or not, but that didn't matter. And unless I uh, helped them release the money, then greedy bankers would get it. And it was in everybody's best interest that bankers' bonuses didn't go up. So they're, uh, they're, they're pleading through a slightly different moral code in some respects, but that basic scam is still the same. And that, in my experience, is the thing that people are training people in the business about most. This is a phishing email. When you see a phishing email like that, you should destroy it. But that's never going to satisfy your GDPR requirement for technical and organizational measures. Why? Because just as technology has moved, in, moved on since the early 90s, so has phishing too. And modern phishing attacks are ever more sophisticated. And the people behind them are more sophisticated too. So we still have African gangs, for example, involved in phishing. But we might have them uh, working in concert with uh, Eastern European hackers, for example, who are getting evidence from the organization that they're using to attack it with. And they're using fairly sophisticated social engineering. So they're, for example, looking at uh, social media feeds to find out when a CEO is visiting a particular country. And they're assuming that he's doing some sort of corporate deal. So they might do what's called a CEO fraud of e uh, emailing somebody back in the office to say, the deal we talked about is close to completion. I need you to transfer this amount of money for lawyers' fees as a deposit on the deal or what, however that might be described. So we're certainly seeing an increase in CEO fraud. But we're seeing stuff that's even more sophisticated than that. And by the way, small organizations can be subject to this as well. Cordry is a niche compliance firm. We get these on a daily basis. 
those that pass our technology filters and are plausible enough uh, to be read. But we're also seeing people understand how global corporations work. So in one case we've been involved with, and I won't give too many details for that reason, the, um, the, um, the finance uh, director of a UK subsidiary of a US corporation was the victim, as was the company. What happened in this case is it started with one email, technically a spoofing email, so it looked as if it had come from the finance director, and it just said to a co-worker, I like the skirt you have on uh, today. That's email number one. And email number two says something like um, the, the following day or a couple of days later, that jacket you have really suits your skin complexion. And then eventually the uh, email goes that that uh, blouse you had on, that shirt you had on today was great. Probably looked better if you undid a couple couple of buttons and, and, uh, and it was more low cut. So um, what then happened is the uh, HR team in the in uh, the, the the individual concerned the recipient of these emails complained to HR, and HR suspended this individual, told him to go home, told him that there'd be an investigation, that he'd sent inappropriate emails, and obviously in the Me Too world, this is pre Me Too if you like, but this is a, a common or certainly a more common occurrence in corporations. And that itself was the scam. These emails weren't from him. He protested his innocence. He said, I don't know, don't know what you're talking about. I've had nothing to do with this. Go home. We'll interview you. We'll chat it through then. Don't access the company's systems. Don't answer emails. You just stay at home. We'll tell you when we're ready for interview. And in that period, whilst he was away from the office, the gang controlled his uh, controlled access to the company's accounts. They were able to drain the accounts because the alerts from the bank on suspicious payments were going to the FD. The FD had been told not to answer his emails and no arrangements had been put in place for somebody to monitor his email box. So they're in it on the long game, the gang here. They know how a lot of US corporations particularly think with them being averse to issues around uh, harassment, for example, and they removed a key player who, uh, and that then gave them the ability to control funds, and also importantly, the person who was, who would be able to detect suspicious movements in the bank accounts was also removed from the scene as well. And we've seen increasing levels of sophistication in all sorts of areas with these attacks. So, for example, in things like accounts receivable frauds, where they've monitored the accounts of relatively uh, junior members of staff who are chasing debts. And the gang have been able to work out from that a rough approximation of the debtor list. And then they continue to chase the debts, but ask that those debts be paid into a different account, which obviously belongs to the scammers. And they, they prey on the fact again in the corporate environment, that if we say we're going to stop supplying to you, that somebody in the organization will panic, somebody in the organization will say, I don't care what it takes, pay these people now, 
we operate on just-in-time delivery, and even though that component is a very small component, it goes into a very big thing, and do you know how much it costs to suspend a factory production line? Pay these guys now. So just as we are, just as we're still looking out for plain vanilla, unsophisticated scams, a lot of the sophisticated gangs have moved on. And the danger about telling people to look for the wrong things is they self-affirm when they uh, see something that's more sophisticated. Some people in this situation might think, well, that could be a scam. But then they'll think, well, it can't be phishing because phishing emails are badly spelt. Phishing emails sign off with may your God be with you. And because we've showed people what 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 phishing emails used to look like, they drop their guard. And when they see something that's suspicious but isn't that, they think that it's safe as a result. So training on phishing now has to tell people not what phishing looks like. It has to tell people, like we did in the UK in the Second World War, if you see something unusual, report it. It's not your job to work out whether it's a scam or not. It's not your job to work out um, what to do with the scam or what the scam could be or who could be behind it. It's your job to report it. Just as in most organizations, we've successfully trained people over the last 20 years to say, if you see a fire, raise the alarm and get out of the building. We don't tell people anymore you have to diagnose the type of fire. You have to work out who might be behind the fire. You have to select the right fire extinguisher. We're going to teach you 20 different fire extinguishers, one for electrical fire. We don't. We say to people, raise the alarm and obey instructions. And we have to make sure that fishing training is the same these days as well. Well, Jonathan, this has been a fascinating, if not terrifying, uh, podcast uh, with several examples of extraordinarily sophisticated um, fishing expeditions coupled with spoofing expeditions. Uh, I hope people will uh, understand that uh, I've had it explained to me that social engineering is about 98% common sense and that literally you're correct. If you see something that is outside the ordinary, um, just raise your hand. You're right. You don't have to decide. If you as a junior clerk and accounts payable get an email from the CEO and you've never met the CEO, maybe you should take it to your boss. Maybe you should raise your hand and say, I just got this from the CEO. Can, can you check on this for me? Um, if you're the CFO uh, and you get a request from the CEO, I hope that you will confirm that request in some manner that, that you feel is reliable, whether it's a voice or in-person confirmation. The, um, these more sophisticated attacks and the one you, you mentioned around Me Too and sexual harassment uh, it really it involves a lot of issues that corporations, to me, uh, really points up the need for um, either segregation of duties or alternative controls. That if your primary control or your primary gatekeeper goes down for reasons that they've been asked to go home, that they're sick, it's the weekend, or other, that there be a secondary control which could step in and, uh, if not be as robust, certainly uh, provide some level of protection. So I hope people will understand both the technology and the operational nature of, of your explanation and move forward. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. 
you have any questions on fishing, you can email Jonathan at jonathan.armstrong at quarterycompliance.com. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jonathan and I again for another episode of Life with GDPR. Life with GDPR is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.